The scripture reading from, or for this morning is from Psalm 22, verses 1 through 24. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide, Against me, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Thank you, Emily. One of the things about living in a house with a two-year-old and a three-year-old is that there is one question that you always, you just keep asking over and over and over again, and that's why. Right? Uh, Why did you take an entire roll of toilet paper, unroll it uh, off the roll, and leave it in a pile in the middle of the bathroom? Uh, Why do you insist on screaming like a pterodactyl? Uh, Why did you take all of the cotton balls out and put them in your toolbox? I don't even know where your tools are anymore. Uh, Why did you take an entire box of Cheerios and dump it on the floor? Uh, And, of course, why did you hit your brother? Why did you push your sister to the ground? Why? But, of course, we, we, we we know the answer to this, and the answer is, well, because they're kids. Uh, you know, when, when, my, when my daughter 
hits my son, it's not something that we encourage. It's something we're trying to correct. Uh, but it's not altogether unexpected. When my, when my daughter pushes her brother to the ground because she wants to play with his cement mixer, uh, again, that's something we're trying to work on, but it's not something that's totally unexpected. Now, of course, if I did this to my wife, uh, right, if, if I, you know, shoved my wife to the ground so that I could get the remote control, uh, I'm not sure that we'd see it the same way. Right? We, we, expect, we expect kids to do that, but we, we expect adults, there's this basic assumption that adults should know better, that adults should never try to harm somebody else. And in fact, adults are expected, like if you're just an average good person, you're sort of expected not only to not hurt somebody, but if you see somebody who is hurting and you just stand by, you need to do something. Right? Again, if, if my son, you know, if, if he, if he uh, sees my daughter go up and about to touch a hot iron and my son doesn't try to stop her, well, okay, we can probably excuse him of that. But if I didn't, if I saw my daughter walking towards the hot iron, I said, ah, whatever. I think we might have a problem. Right? We expect that an adult, a, a good, loving adult, is, is going to do everything they can not to hurt somebody, and, and, and certainly they're going to try to prevent somebody from being hurt. And if, if that's what we expect of an adult, how much more do we expect that of God? How much more would we expect that of a good and loving God? Today we're continuing in a series we started last week, a series called Barriers. And, and we, we all have barriers in life. We all have uh, things uh, that we wish that we could have. Uh, we all have maybe experiences that wish, we wish that we could have. Um, but there are barriers that hinder us from having that. So, so for example, uh, I would love to be a defensive lineman for the New England Patriots. Uh, but the fact that I weigh 135 pounds is a barrier. Uh, I would love, I, I just started reading again uh, science fiction, and I just reading this book about the, these astronauts. They're, they're trying to colonize a new planet, and, and I, I, you know, I read this last scene last night, and it was so stressful. They're trying to you know, re-enter orbit, and, and everything's going wrong. They don't have the right angle, and I'm like, man, I would love to be an astronaut. I'd love to go, you know, go on the first manned mission to Mars, I would love to, to do that, but, but I, I have this propensity to just pass out randomly, which when you're, when you're piloting, you know, a multi-billion dollar spacecraft, it's probably not the, the best quality characteristic that NASA is looking for. That, that's a barrier. It's a barrier for me. We, we have barriers that hinder us from having something that we would really like to have, and, and, and I think that for many of us in our culture, there are many of us, perhaps you here today are listening online that that you are drawn to Jesus. You are drawn to God. You are drawn to Christianity. There are many things about what you hear about Jesus and about the, the Bible's understanding of God that you're really drawn to. And, and maybe you're drawn to Christian community. Maybe you have uh, some Christian friends that you really love and respect and you see how their faith has positively impacted their life. Um, and you, you would love to have that, but, but there are barriers. There are barriers. Maybe you're here and you, you even profess faith. But your faith is, is always, it's always kind of, God is kept at arm's length a little bit. You can't fully engage because there are these barriers. And, and they, oftentimes they come in the form of questions, questions that we have. And, and so what we're looking at in this series, the series called Barriers, Barriers to Belief, is we're looking at some of the most common barriers that people have, some of the most common questions that people have that hinder them from being able to embrace 
faith in Jesus fully. And the question that we're looking at today is, is the issue of suffering. It's the question of suffering. The sort of fancy word for this is theodicy. And, and, and it's this, basically to formulate it this way, if I were to kind of formulate it as just a statement, it's, it's, it's basically saying, okay, the, the Bible says that, that God is all-powerful um, and he's also all-loving. So he's completely in control of everything. He has all power, and he's also all loving. Okay, if that's true, then why is there suffering in this world? Why is there so much suffering? I mean, that's the one thing that we know for sure. There's no debating that. There's no debating that there is suffering in this world. There's no question about that. So so how how can it be? How how can God be all-loving and all-powerful when there's so much suffering? You know, maybe, okay, maybe he's all-powerful, but he's not really all-loving. Well, that would make sense then. Okay, so that's why there's there's suffering in this world. Or maybe he's all-loving, he really loves us, but he's not all-powerful, so he can't can't always stop it, right? Then that would make sense. But but how do you reconcile God being all-powerful and all-loving when there is so much suffering And I, I want to start just just by uh, by well, I, I want to start by just kind of challenging uh, an assumption that goes along with this, uh, and, and that's this: it, it, it assumes off the bat, first of all, that suffering is always a bad thing. There's an assumption there that suffering is always a bad thing, and, and believe me, I'm not going to try to go on here and suggest that that suffering is always a good thing. Far from it, but I want us to at least take a step back and pause and ask ourselves, is it really true that suffering is always a bad thing? Because interestingly enough, as we look at this question of suffering and we say it's a barrier to belief, actually is it not true that sometimes suffering itself can be the gateway to belief? That for some people, suffering is precisely what draws them to God, it's, it's what gets them to, 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 to look to him in the first place. And this actually emerges, I think, in this passage here. It's just sort of implicit here. In verse 2, uh, oh my God, I cry out by day, uh, right? So the, the psalmist is suffering and, and they're crying out to God. It's like, I need you. I need you that, that oftentimes, is it possible, is it possible that God might use suffering to draw us to him. Because at the heart of what the Bible teaches is that at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen to anybody is to not come to know God. That's worse than anything that could happen to you. Is if you didn't come to know God. Jesus says, what good is it if a man gains the whole world, yet forfeits his very soul? It's another way of saying, well, what good is it if if a man, you know, he gets everything in this world. He goes through his life, and and just everything goes right for him, and he never really experiences any hardship, and he never really experiences any difficulty, but he never comes to know God. He says, that's much worse. That's that's much worse. The the worst thing that could happen to you is is if you didn't come to to know God, and so... Is it possible that maybe God might actually use suffering to draw us to him? We might say, well, well wait a minute, Kevin. Don't, don't you think that if he's just trying to draw us to him, then he should bless us, right? I mean, if he just blessed us, right, then wouldn't that, 
wouldn't that, out of gratitude, we, we'd say, oh, wow, God is so good, and look what he's done for me. And, and that's certainly true. I mean, yeah, I think that, that blessing sometimes can draw us to God and, and out of gratitude, but, but is it also not true that, that, that oftentimes blessing causes us to forget about God? I mean, this is certainly what Jesus seems to imply throughout his ministry. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, it's possible that that Jesus is being prescriptive there. In other words, he's saying that you need to humble yourself to come before me. It's possible that's what he's saying, but I think it's just as likely, perhaps more likely, that he's not being prescriptive. He's being descriptive, and he's simply describing the kinds of people who come to know God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones that come to know God. Because they're the ones that are are broken and and face hardship and so then find themselves needing to turn to God. Jesus says elsewhere, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If he was going to use sort of a modern illustration today, he might say something like this. It is easier for a 747 to fly through the Lincoln Tunnel than for a rich man to to enter the kingdom of God, a a, a rich man who has everything, has money, wealth, health. Is is it possible that God might want to use suffering to draw us to him because suffering can draw us to him in a way that that pleasure and blessing can't? C.S. Lewis puts it this way in in his book, The Problem of Pain. This is a classic book. This is an issue that you struggle with. I would highly recommend it. This is what he says. He says, anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods uh, as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is it possible that that God might use suffering to draw us to him? Okay, but is it really just that simple? Are we done? Can we just end it there? I I think probably we we might concede, okay, I can see how that works, but but surely, again, you're not trying to say that, that all of the suffering that I experience and my friend's experience and the world experience, that it's all... God just trying to draw us to him. Is that really? I mean, I get it, but that seems a little bit simplistic. There's got to be more more to this. And I think there is. If we probe a little bit deeper into this question, there's something else we need to see. If if the first point challenges this assumption that that suffering is always a bad thing, then the the second point I want to highlight here is is that perhaps this statement, the way we've stated this question, is incomplete. It gives an incomplete picture of God. And again, let me restate it again. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, then how can there be suffering in this world? And what I would suggest is that that it's leaving out a very important dimension of who God is, and that is that God isn't just all-loving, and he's not just all-powerful, he's also all-knowing. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, but he's also omniscient, that that, that he's all-knowing, and I would think that this would make sense. This would flow out of the fact that he's all-powerful. Uh, right? So, so to put it another way, 
If God is big enough to fix the problem, is he also not likely big enough to have reasons that we don't understand? If God's big enough to fix suffering, is it possible that he might be big enough to, to have reasons we don't understand? Like, like a, a kid who's in the dentist office. My, my daughter just went to the, the dentist and went better than we thought. I mean, I think she probably thought the dentist was the devil, right? She doesn't know. She didn't understand. She didn't realize that the dentist who had the, the power to cause or prevent this suffering also had, had reasons that she didn't understand. And is it possible the same thing could be true for us? That if God is big enough to fix our suffering, is it also not likely that he's probably big enough to have reasons that we don't understand? And this is why at, at the heart of, of, of Christian faith, Christian belief, isn't just belief. It's not just I believe in God. It's I trust. I trust in God. We see this here in verse, in verse 4. Well, just the whole flow of this argument. You know, my God, I, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. You see, it's not just a matter of believing in God. It's trusting in God and, and trusting that he might have a perspective that we don't understand. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I had the privilege four years ago to do the funeral for a longtime member of our church, Maddie Ciccarello. And I had the opportunity to spend some time with her, uh, as, her as she was approaching the end of her life. And we had some very frank conversations, and she shared with me she had experienced uh, many, many years before a great tragedy where her daughter, one of her daughters, was killed tragically in a car accident. And we were talking, we were chatting, and she said to me, she said, Pastor, you know, the first thing when I get up there, when I see God, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, I'm going to say, God, why did you let that happen? But you see, what that, what that revealed is a deep trust, that she realized that, that in this life, maybe there, that she was not going to be able to understand or comprehend, that if there was a reason, if there were reasons, that maybe she wouldn't be able to understand. And so she, she trusted in that. She trusted that maybe God had an understanding that, that she didn't have. And so you see this, this idea of trusting in God and leaning not on our own understanding, realizing that he might be bigger and have an understanding that we can't understand this points us in the direction, a different direction in the way in which Christians approach suffering. You see, at the end of the day, the Christian approach to suffering um, is not so much a matter of looking for answers as it is a matter of looking for comfort. You see, at the end of the day, Christianity doesn't try to give you a bunch of answers, but what it does do is tries to give you unique comfort in the midst of your trials and in your suffering. Because, I mean, is it not true? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that, that when you're really in the middle of suffering, I'm not sure there's any answer that's going to make any difference. Many of you probably saw the national championship game, basketball game, a couple of weeks ago. And it was it's kind of been hailed as one of the greatest national championship games in history. And, of course, it came right down to the wire. Uh, Villanova won on a buzzer beater 
uh, to beat North Carolina, and you know everybody on the Villanova team just went crazy. Uh, this was this was something that you win the national championship. This is something that they would probably say like their whole lives had been been kind of built towards. You know, they had been working for for so many since they were kids. This is the kind of thing that every kid is a basketball player dreams of, and it was everything that they had been working for and giving their lives for, and it was the, just this fulfillment of this huge, tremendous dream. And, and so when they won, the, the president actually of Villanova canceled classes the next day uh, because he just knew nobody was going to come anyways. But think about it if you played for North Carolina. Because those kids, they also, their whole life, many of them seniors, this was their last chance, and, and they had spent their whole, their whole life trying, aiming for this, this dream, this vision, and they fell this short. Just imagine how, how they must have felt after the game. And I thought it was interesting because they interviewed Roy Williams, the coach of North Carolina, and the reporter asked him, they said, you know, what, what did you say in the locker room after the game to those kids? And I thought what Roy Williams said was perfect. I, I don't know Roy Williams at all, uh, but based on what he said there, uh, if basketball doesn't work out for him, I think he'd make a very good pastor. Because here's what he said. He said, you know what? I just talked. I, I just talked. I, I don't even know what I said. He said, there's nothing I could have said that would have taken away that heartache. I mean, he, he could have, you know, he could have taken some sort of line like what I've done here at the beginning of the sermon. You know, he, uh, he could have said, uh, could have said something like, "You know what, guys? I know this. This is really hard for you now, but it's just going to make you stronger." You know, uh, I know losing a game like this is terrible, but this is what makes men out of boys. This is going to build your character. Or, or he could have said, "You know what, guys? Uh, you know, I know you don't see the reason now, but there's a reason for everything. Just got to hold on. There's going to be a reason for everything." But, but he just knew, like, there is nothing. There was nothing he could say that was going to mean anything to them, even if it was true. When you're in the middle of it. You don't want to hear answers. There's no answer that's going to work. And if that's true for losing a basketball game, how much more is that true when, when somebody experiences real loss? Somebody loses their job, loses a family member, when someone's going through some sort of really challenging health issue. You see, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think answers, even if there are answers, I don't think they're going to make any difference. And so, that's why at the heart of Christianity, it doesn't try to give you answers, but it gives you a unique source of comfort. And we see that if we probe a little, bit dif- a little bit deeper into this passage, Psalm 22. And we can probe a little bit deeper by, by setting it in its proper context here, its biblical context here. Psalm 22, uh, uh, written by King David. Uh, but what's interesting about it, right, so it's written by King David, so presumably it was birthed out of his own experience, Presumably, it was birthed out of his, you know, whatever he had been going through. What's interesting is that when you look through the Psalms of David, there are some Psalms where you can you can kind of infer exactly what he was probably going through. You know, he wrote this Psalm when he was fleeing from Absalom, or he he wrote this Psalm when he was in the cave, you know, running from Saul. And and sometimes it's 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 more clear. But but this one, it's really not very clear. And it reminds us that the Psalms, although they, they can reflect the experience of David or whoever else may have written various Psalms, they're not, the, the goal of reading a Psalm is not 
to find out the historical context of the person who wrote it. I mean, it, it can help you to understand the meaning of it. But, but really, the book of Psalms was written for the people of God to be used in their own devotions, to be used in their own worship, to, to, to be used as a way of connecting with God. That, that, that when you read the Psalms, it kind of puts into words things you can't, you, you, you're feeling and, and, and want to express, but you, you can't. I mean, I, I often tell people who are going through difficult times to read through the Psalms because the Psalms will put uh, into words their feelings that they maybe can't, can't articulate. And so the book of Psalms was meant to be used by the people of Israel. And, and, and so we can imagine that throughout the history of the people of Israel, various, various famous Israelites would have prayed Psalm 22. They would have used this as their own prayer. You can imagine uh, that Jeremiah or, uh, or Elijah or, or whoever, Daniel, whoever else might have, have used this prayer to pray when they were in the midst of difficulties and suffering. We can imagine that. But, of course, the Bible tells us specifically about one Israelite who prayed this prayer. We know this for sure. And the Israelite who, who prayed this prayer was Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, this is on page 988 of your of your pew Bibles. Jesus has been arrested, convicted. Uh, He has been scolded and rejected by his own people. His hands and feet have been pierced as he's been hung up on the cross. The, the, the guards have taken his garments and they have cast lots for his garments and they have divided them up amongst themselves. And so then Jesus is hanging on the cross. And here in verse 48, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prays Psalm 22. And and, and what's so eerie about Jesus praying Psalm 22, what's so eerie about it uh, is that the detail that we find in Psalm 22 fits Jesus' historical situation better than anything we know about David. You read through it and you, you saw this, that what it says fits Jesus way more than it, anything that we know about David. And so we come to see here that the psalm written by David was written by David to be used by the people of Israel, but there is this strange sense in which this Psalm was written for Jesus. And so when you read Psalm 22 in that light, then Psalm 22, what does it do? Psalm 22 points us to the cross. And at the cross, we find a unique source of comfort. And I want to highlight three ways in which the cross doesn't necessarily give us answers to suffering, but provides a unique source of comfort in three ways. First of all, the cross provides us comfort because here's what it assures us of. It assures us of this, that when you are in the midst of suffering and you are trying to figure out why you are suffering, 
the one thing you can be absolutely sure of is that it isn't because God doesn't love you. Whatever the reason is, if there is a reason for your suffering, what you can be absolutely certain of is that the reason isn't that God doesn't love you. Because at the heart of the cross begins with our heart of our understanding of who Jesus was. And we saw this last week when we looked at the Gospel of John. Uh, John introduces us to Jesus and he introduces us to this mysterious concept of God as being tri-personal. He introduces us to this this unique but absolutely central concept to the Christian understanding of God that, that God was, has always been a community of love, a community of love. That is very essence, he is a loving community. And, and, and so you have God the Father and you have God the Son who for all eternity have been in a loving relationship. And then the heart of the Christian faith is that God the Son put on flesh. God the Son came in the person of Jesus Christ, and it was God the Son who died on the cross. So what you see at the very heart of of, of Christian understanding of God is that God himself died on the cross for us, and the heart of that is that he died to forgive us of our sin. He he died to forgive us of our sin, that, that we should be punished for our sin, but he took it upon himself because he loves us. The heart of, of, of the Christian God is that he's the one who gave himself completely for us. That, that Jesus experienced the abandonment from God the Father that we, because of our sin, deserve to experience. It's, 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 it's like God himself is breaking apart on the cross for us. It's the complete giving of himself for us as the ultimate act of love. And so whatever reason you might have Whatever reason there might be for your experiencing suffering, it, you have to know when you look at the cross, it's not because God doesn't love you. You see, that, that's really important, right? If you don't look at the cross, I think in the midst of suffering, you, you could start to wonder, you know, is, is God really my heavenly father or is God really more like the Godfather? You remember Godfather 2? Kay Corleone comes to her husband, Michael, the godfather, and she says, Michael, I'm leaving you. And Michael says, you know that will never happen. He says, you know, I will use all of my power. I will do everything to make sure that you don't leave me. He says, I will, I will cut off your financial support. I will cut off the financial support of the children I will, what is he saying? He's saying, I will make you suffer so that you will come to me. Now, remember, I I said earlier, you know, I I said earlier that that perhaps God uses suffering to draw us to himself. But when you're in the midst of suffering, then you just kind of have to ask yourself, well, why, why is God so concerned with drawing me to him? Does he really have my best interest at heart? Or is God really more like Michael Corleone where it's really all about his ego? It's really all about himself. It's really all about his own manipulative attitude. And is that the God that we worship? You see, maybe he's using suffering to draw me to him, but how do I know he really has my best interest at heart? You see, you might think that until you look at the cross. Because on the cross, you see that God has done what Michael Corleone would never do. He would give everything up. Give up his power, give up everything for his wife, give up everything for the one he loves. But when you look at the cross, that's what you see about our God. 
that God mysteriously, the way in which he exercises his sovereignty is not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing of it. Giving himself entirely for us. So, So you see, that becomes a unique source of comfort. It doesn't necessarily give you an answer. But when you look at the cross, what you can be sure of is that when you are in the midst of suffering, it's not because God doesn't care. God suffered for us. Secondly, we see on the cross, not only did God suffer for us, but he suffered with us. And what this shows us is that not only when you're in the midst of suffering, not only when you look at the cross do you see that, that God cares, but you also see that he understands. He, he knows what you're going through. That when you're in the midst of suffering and, and you know, you, you shake your fist to heaven and say, why, God, why? But the one thing you can't say is, God, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. We, at, at the Good Friday service a few weeks ago, we, we looked at all of the different dimensions of suffering that Jesus experienced in his final hours. And he experienced betrayal and rejection and injustice, and humiliation, and, and he experienced physical suffering, and he, he, fear, he experienced eternal suffering, the abandonment from God the Father, he experienced death. You see, in the midst of suffering, you may shake your fist at heaven and say, why God, why? But the one thing you can't, the two things you can't say is you don't care, and you don't understand. You see, when you're in the midst of suffering, and I, I hope you will look, just know when you look to God, he understands what you are going. Three sources of comfort. First of all, you know, it isn't that God doesn't care. You know that God understands. And finally, the cross points us to the reality that ultimately God will overcome. Jesus on the cross reminds us that he suffered for us and with us. But the empty cross reminds us of the resurrection, that Jesus had ultimate victory over over death, over pain, over suffering. And that we can hope, we can trust and believe that on the basis of the resurrection, that ultimately God will deliver us from whatever we are experiencing. Paul says in, in Romans 8, after eight chapters of very dense leading up to his articulation of the gospel, he, I think I marked this here in Romans chapter 8, Uh, He says, uh, well, I have the first part memorized, so at least say that. He says, oh, here we go. Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Here, Paul is articulating the reality that there will come a day when God will put an end to all evil. He will put an end end to the suffering that comes uh, because of the decisions that we make, individuals make. He's even going to put an end to the suffering that comes from what we might call natural evil. He's going to put an end to all of it. The God who created everything is going to recreate everything. And the suffering that we experience now cannot be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what the heart of the resurrection of Jesus is all about. That Jesus' resurrection anticipates our own resurrection. That even death, even death will be overcome. Jesus 
So you see, I think that for Christians, the question in the midst of suffering is not why, but how long. How long? That, 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 that's the appropriate question for a Christian to ask is how long? The fancy way of saying that is for the Christian, suffering is not a philosophical question. It's an eschatological question. It's not why. It's not why because, because actually, let's put it this way. Uh, why does God allow suffering? Well, here's what the resurrection actually ultimately tells us is this. He doesn't allow suffering. Why does God allow suffering? He doesn't. To say that God allows suffering would be a little bit like you're in the midst of suffering and you call the 911 and you tell them to come get you and then you, you put, hang the phone up and you say, I don't get it. I don't know why the paramedics are allowing me to suffer. Why are they allowing me to suffer? They're not. They're coming. They're on their way. The heart of the Christian faith is that, that God ultimately does not allow suffering, that he will overcome it. And so it, it just shifts. The question's not philosophical. It's eschatological. It's how long. How long until you deliver me from this? And this is a question that, that we, we find emerging over and over and over and over again in the book of Psalms. I, I marked so many different, I have so many tabs here. I ran out of tabs because in the book of Psalms, you just find it all over. I'll just, I'll read a couple for you. Psalm 6, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Uh, this is all the way, Psalm 13, how long? Uh, yeah, Psalm 13 says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? Psalm uh, 35, O Lord, how long will you look on, rescue my life from their ravages? I mean, just on and on and on. You see this in the book of Psalms. You see that? That's the appropriate question. Is how long? Friends, I, I pray that When you find yourself in the midst of suffering, and, and there are only, as I said earlier, there are only three types of people in this world, those who have suffered, those who are suffering, and those who will suffer. Jesus warns the disciples at the end of his mystery. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. The heart of the Christian faith is not that in this life, you're going to be, have no suffering at all. No, in this world, you you will have trouble, and, 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 and so everybody will. And, and my prayer is that when you find yourself in, in the midst of suffering, my prayer is that you will come to us, that you will come to the church. My prayer is that you will come to me. My prayer is that you will come to the elders. My prayer is that you will come to your community group leader. I pray that you will come to us. And what I want you to know is that when you come to us, we're not going to try to give you answers. what we're going to do is we're going to point you to the cross. We're going to remind you that God loves you. God understands what you're going through. And ultimately, God will deliver you. Let's pray. Dear God, I just, I lift up those who right now are are hurting in our church right now that perhaps even are even having to fight to keep their composure, Lord. 
God, I pray that they would know that this is, this is a safe place to be real. This is a safe place to hurt. God, I pray that we would be a place where we can come alongside one another and we can enter into each other's suffering as you did, Lord, that we can seek to love those who are suffering. We can seek to enter into it with them, to be there with them, Lord, and to encourage them. God, I pray that in the midst of our suffering, we would not lose hope. God, we would know that, that you really are our only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name.